0: Well, you're in for a bit of a treat this morning, I think. Uh, I wanted to call this sermon Random Thoughts uh, because there's a point where we kind of look at it and you kind of think, what on earth is this passage doing here? Um, You've had... A couple of great parables, the lost parables with its three stories about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost sons. Uh, You've had the shrewd manager and now all of a sudden dropped in the middle just before the great story about uh, Lazarus and the rich man. We're going to get to that next week. You've got this uh, seemingly random couple of verses. Uh, raising some really, really, really big issues. Um, I went looking this week and I've got some commentators that I find often really helpful in Luke's gospel. This is what one guy said about it. Kenneth Bailey said the reasons for the presence of Luke 16, 16 to 18, between the teaching on money and the parable have thus far escaped me. This guy's been studying it for about 50 years. uh, And uh, hopefully uh, as he is now with the Lord Jesus, uh, he's got the answer to that question. But uh, I would hope this morning, and as I studied it, I think we can uh, see what is happening here. Uh, I don't want you to think, oh my goodness, uh, what is this? Can I just acknowledge up front, uh, particularly the issue of divorce and remarriage, which seems to be just dropped in here. Uh, it's a massive issue. I know it's a massive issue and I know it affects uh, many of us here in a very real way. So can I just say, I'm going to try to deal with this graciously and carefully. I may raise issue f- issues for you uh, that please come and talk to me. Can I just say, this sermon is not about divorce. Uh, Jesus, I think, is using uh, the teaching on divorce as an illustration about the main point that he's making, which is something else. Uh, And so we're not going to deal with it extensively. We will cover it, but we're not going to deal with it extensively. If there are particular issues, please come and talk to me. Um, I am not trying to hurt people. I'm not trying to be flippant and careless but I am aware that this is a really thorny issue uh, that does affect many of us. Now, I want to, uh, want to start by saying I think we can understand this piece of scripture when we actually see it in its context. Uh, when you walk into a movie, uh, if you walk into a movie late, you stay for one scene and walk out. You've almost got no hope of actually knowing what's happening, do you? It's the same thing as if you dive into the scripture, just grab a couple of verses and then come back out and say, well, what does this mean? It can be really, really hard to actually find out uh, what that is meaning. The context is important. Now, I hesitated about using this illustration, but I think it works. Okay, so just bear with me. I had some people in my last church. uh, She introduced herself and she said, Hi, my name is, and I'm not going to tell you. um, And I said, Oh, what do you do for a living? We got to that. She said, "Um, I give drugs to children and my husband cuts them up. You're like, what? She's a pharmacist and he's a paediatric surgeon. Um, okay, oh. <laughs> the context makes a really big difference. Yes? Okay, she also said it with a massive smile on her face uh, and, uh, and didn't look to be the sort, you know, if you know what I mean. The context is vital. And here we have a block of teaching that starts back in chapter 15, verse 1, where you have this recorded. The tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. These couple of verses, I think, provide the context for the teaching that goes from chapter 15 all the way through into chapter 17, where at verse 11, Jesus moves on. So this is one big block, and we need to understand it as part of a tapestry of teaching. And this, these couple of verses are a few threads of teaching that weave into the whole. Does that make sense? The context is uh, the religious types grumbling about Jesus welcoming the sinners and the tax collectors. And what flows through the heart of this message is grace. That is there. Now, there is a beauty to grace, isn't there? What do you think of uh, when you think of graceful? You might be uh, into uh, sports, athletics, dance, ice skating. These people who seem to glide across the face of this planet, uh, sometimes on skates, sometimes on their feet, uh, doing incredible things. Do you think, though, of Jesus As being graceful, I think there's an incredible beauty to grace. And when you find someone who is truly graceful, not just physically graceful, but graceful in their essence, graceful, you see something that is compelling. And The faith that Jesus calls us to have, the religion that he calls us to practice is graceful religion. And it should be compelling. It should be radically different. Unfortunately, so often not the case. And here we have the contrast in this larger context between the graceful religion preached and practiced by Jesus and to what he calls his disciples to and the graceless religion of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And I think this morning we are going to see a negative example. This is what you should not be like. We've got three points. Uh, The heart of true religion, heartless religion, and then transforming the heart. Going to move pretty quickly here. The heart of true religion. Um, We have seen, if you've been with us over the last three weeks, we've seen things that are just amazing. The amazing grace of the father in the lost parables. So as we unpack that, the guy who uh, welcomes his rebellious younger son home, who's wasted a third of the family assets, and he runs to throw his arms around his son, The father who leaves the banquet to go and beg his older son to come back in. No Middle Eastern patriarch would ever act like this. No man with dignity and honour would ever do this. Who would do this? We also saw last week the grace of the rich man. His steward has given away enormous amounts of his money, the equivalent of about $150,000 in today's terms. He's given away phenomenal amounts of his wealth, and not only does the rich man allow that adjustment to stand, showing his grace to the tenants, he praises his steward for acting wisely. Now, no wealthy landowner would do this. Who would be like this? Well, the heart of what Jesus is teaching is that God is like this. He is gracious. And in Christ, grace is embodied. Now, grace is not just the thing that you say at the start of meals. Grace means undeserved, unmerited favor. It should actually leave us mouths open just going, wow. That's incredible. I think for many Christians, particularly, grace has become familiar. We should see something that makes us just jaw-droppingly astounded. It should be something that amazes us. And Jesus says, this is at the heart of what I call you to come and follow, to come and be. Jesus embodied it. He calls us to it. Hearts thankful, overflowing in response to God's grace for us in Christ. The kind of religion that sees the sinners and the tax collectors coming in, rejoicing to be there. But Jesus tells us, and I think this is what he deals with today. He says there's a counterfeit. Is a fake that looks good, but it's not the real thing. And he moves us on to heartless religion. The Pharisees are there. Uh, They cop a lot of bad press uh, in today uh, because we understand how the Bible teaches of them. But at the day, in Jesus' time, these guys were the religious elite. They were a lay group of people who had willingly taken upon themselves the responsibilities under the law of the priesthood. So they were acting at a much, much higher level and they took their religion seriously. They were highly regarded. If you wanted to know who the super spiritual person was, it's the Pharisees. That was them. And they appeared back in 15 verse 2 murmuring, grumbling, that Jesus would accept the sinners. And then Jesus teaches about God's grace and teaches that his followers should be overflowing and being generous to draw in the sinners, the lost. And we have this in verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money, Luke tells us, they heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. They were looking down their noses at him. Literally, that's what it says. They were scorning him. He's been teaching them about grace overflowing in generosity. And they're like, as if. Like, who would do that? And as if the the sinners and the tax collectors are worth the effort as if you would do it and jesus then turns from instructing his disciples to deal with the pharisees verse 15 he said to them you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others but god knows your hearts What people value highly is detestable, an abomination in God's sight. Pretty strong words, yes? Probably not what you'd want to hear. But Jesus is saying that the Pharisees, this self-serving, this heartless religion, they were into justifying themselves before others. You see, they had reframed their relationship with God So they could tick all the boxes and say, we are righteous. And that's what they taught people. So people would see them as righteous. They had reduced the relationship they had with God down to obedience to a series of rules. Now, I want you to imagine you've got a friend who um, turns up one day with their clipboard. Okay. And they've got a whole lot of points, dot points, and they've ticked next to each point. And they said, look, I've been looking at our friendship and I've worked out what my responsibilities as a friend are and I see that I am fulfilling them perfectly. Maybe wives, you could do this with your husbands. Husbands, you could do this with the wives. You'd you'd at least be looking at them a bit strange, wouldn't you? Because a friendship or a relationship, it doesn't work like a series of rules. It's not the way things are. They have ticked all the I'm a good friend boxes, but they may be actually not really the kind of person that you're feeling close to. The Pharisees had reduced their relationship with God down to a series of rules, and they had literally cut the heart out of the law. They had used it to declare themselves as being okay, but they had missed what is at its heart. Their use of wealth was evidence of this. They didn't get that the father cared for the sinners for the tax collectors to come in. And so as if I would spend my money to do this, they're saying. They look at themselves, they see their wealth. Obviously, God has blessed us. We are right. They are justifying themselves before others. And they were using their religious service to build themselves up, to serve themselves rather than to serve God. Would we ever do something like that? Well, think about it. Do you find yourselves looking down your nose at anyone else? Do you find yourselves thinking, actually, I wouldn't mind that that person came to faith, but I wouldn't want them as part of my church or my growth group. How do we look at others? How do we look at our relationship with God? And a couple of weeks ago, I I drew you to the fact is, do we have joy in our relationship with God? The older brother back in chapter 15, what did he say to his father? All these years I have been slaving for you. I've been keeping all the rules. I've never disobeyed one of your commands. Is that the relationship between a father and a son? Is it a slave master thing? The Pharisees had reduced their relationship to that kind of things and they said, I am righteous. Do we find ourselves in the same way? Do we use our religion to build ourselves up so we can look down on others? Some questions. The Pharisees loved the law, so Jesus moves on. Verse 16. He says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Now, that's John the Baptist, okay? The one who came just before Jesus. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. We're going to get back to that last little phrase. But Jesus is actually saying, you Pharisees, you love the law, but you don't get it. You're actually missing the point. It had a point to be in force up until John, but it was leading to the next thing, which? The kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, yes, the law is how to live as part of God's people, but it had a bigger function. And the law and the prophets were to point us like a one way street to the kingdom of God. And here I am, and you turn your nose up at me and my teaching. Jesus is here saying, you love the law, you love the Bible, but you just don't get it because you miss what is at its heart. It points to the kingdom and it points to the king. But then you might imagine that the Pharisees are there going, well, what are you saying, Jesus, that the law hasn't got any force now? Jesus moves on, verse 17. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Doesn't the law matter? Jesus says, yes, the law does matter. Jesus isn't teaching that it's a free for all. You could imagine that people are saying, oh, I'm saved by grace. So therefore it doesn't matter how I live. That's not what Jesus is teaching. You can imagine the Pharisees getting cranky. The sinners, the tax collectors are coming in. Grace means you welcome anyone, Jesus. You've lowered the standards. But Jesus says, no. No, I haven't lowered the standards. The law stands, but the law points what to? The kingdom and the king. And we as God's people, we live not under the law, the Old Testament law. We live under the kingship of Christ and how he understood the law to operate. And so we actually see this, just give you a quick example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He said, he's talking about reaching people who are Gentiles, not under the law. He said, to those not having the law... I became like one not having the law. Then there's this little add-on. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. He's under the law of the king. Jesus isn't saying, save by grace so anything goes. He's saying, save by grace so you can live under the law of the king. And what a blessing that is. Paul tells us that he's under Christ's law. But Jesus here is saying with the heartless religion of the Pharisees that they actually missed what the law was about. They had a legalistic frame. Their use of the law was inconsistent because they had lost its heart. They had cut themselves off from the one who gave it. They had lost grace. And then Jesus moves on to probably our most controversial little verse of today. An example of how this works. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another, another woman commits adultery and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now that's a vivid example for then and for now. Let me put it in its cultural frame. Jesus raises this because this was one of the raging controversies of the time. There was a debate amongst the Pharisees about what were the grounds of divorce. The more conservative said it's only for sexual infidelity. The more liberal were there saying, no, 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 no. You can divorce your wife for pretty much any reason, including if she burns the toast at breakfast. Uh, one of the rabbis actually said, cooking crimes was a ground for divorce. So if you don't like your wife's the dinner, she's prepared for you, gone, okay? Give a certificate, move on, okay? So watch out, ladies, okay? But he raises this because it is an example of just how far they have gone wrong. It's like a young couple struggling to stay pure sexually, and they ask the older, wiser Christian, how far can we go? Can I say, wrong question to ask. How holy can we be? That's the right question. Looking for a law loses the heart. Looking for a law loses the heart. It's not that there can't be wise advice but the law misses the point. And the disciples, were uh, the, the Pharisees were there saying, when can we get a divorce? Can I say, Jesus gives us an example, this is the wrong question to be asking. It's not saying that we can never teach on this topic, but they were looking for all sorts of reasons where they could get divorces. Jesus is saying, you've missed the heart. Let me explain just really briefly a snapshot of God's intention for marriage. Back in Genesis 2, you can summarize the teaching on marriage. This is a definition. It's a lifelong, exclusive covenant between a man and a woman made before God. That's marriage. Jesus comes along, and in the middle of this controversy, he affirms what Genesis 2 teaches on marriage. So back in Matthew uh, chapter 19, verse 6, he says what God has joined together, let no one separate. He actually says the definition of marriage, lifelong covenant between a man and a woman, exclusive, made before God, that stands. Then the Pharisees say, verse 7, Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And you can find that teaching in Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. Jesus gives us the answer. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It was not this way from the beginning. What you will not find in the book of Deuteronomy or anywhere else is a teaching that commands divorce. It's not there. What you do find is a teaching that mitigates the effects of divorce. It regulates divorce rather than commands divorce. So what happens in Deuteronomy 24? Moses comes in and stops some of the abuses that were happening under, uh, in Israel at the time. They were divorcing wives, left, right, and center. And Moses said, you've got to give her a certificate, which means that she can go and say, my my husband has, has divorced me, and it would open up the opportunity for remarriage. There was no social security in the time. A woman was incredibly socially vulnerable in that period. To be divorced and not able to remarry was a real challenge to her future. And so Moses actually regulates the practice to limit the damage. It's what the ethicists call a retrieval ethic, okay? Uh, Let me give you another example of a retrieval ethic. Um, Needle exchange programs for IV drug users. Okay, do we think IV drug use is a good option? No, but we recognise that the damage caused by sharing needles is horrendous in terms of disease, in terms of all sorts of things. So we will set up a system that mitigates the damage. Does that make sense? What Moses did in Deuteronomy 24 is set up a system that mitigated the damage caused by, as Jesus said, the hardness of your hearts, the sinfulness of human nature. Jesus is not endorsing, neither was Moses endorsing, the practice. So how do we look at divorce? Divorce is actually breaking something of enormous value. Breaking something that God established not to be broken. Okay? Divorce, let me say this carefully. Divorce is never a good thing, although it is sometimes a necessary thing. Let me say that again. It's never a good thing, although sometimes it is a necessary thing. It's kind of like if you've got a gangrenous foot, cutting it off, amputating it. Why? Because if you leave it there, the effects of leaving it there may actually kill you. But no one lines up for an amputation willingly. You just don't do it. Jesus is saying we should have the same kind of attitude to divorce. We should see it as something that may be necessary, but it is not a good thing. It is something that should be viewed as not part of God's purposes for marriage, but it happens. Does this make sense? A few nods. Let me say, divorce is not the unforgivable sin, but Jesus' teaching here is that divorce and remarriage breaks a relationship. That's the reference to adultery. The Pharisees were treating it like it just didn't matter. Who can I divorce? What can I divorce for? How can this all work? Jesus is actually saying the attitude should be, how can I make this work? And sometimes that doesn't happen. Divorce is something that the Bible, I believe, permits. But it should never be an easy thing. It should never be a light thing. Can I flip it round, though? What's some of the issues? Jesus was critical of the Pharisees for condemning the tax collectors and the sinners. As I thought about this this week, uh, and I haven't scripted this, so hopefully I don't go too far wrong. I think sometimes the way Christians treat people who have been divorced lines up very closely with how the Pharisees were were treating the tax collectors and the sinners. Sometimes Christians have jumped upon Jesus' teaching, saying that divorce breaks something that should not be broken. It's true. Were the tax collectors and sinners sinners? Yes, they were. Did God's grace extend to them? Most definitely. Does God want us to love and care for our brothers and sisters who have been through the horrendous trauma of divorce? Of course he does. Is there forgiveness and grace for them? Well, is there forgiveness and grace for any of us? Yes, of course there is. So how do we treat these things? And maybe as we, we who haven't gone through that, we think about our own attitudes. Maybe we might see more of the Pharisees in ourselves than we would choose to. Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for endorsing a practice that was never God's intention and was only ever to be a last resort as a, an everyday thing. Jesus is saying heartless religion uses the law for your own end to build yourself up. Graceless religion is condemning and condescending. It is joyless and loveless. It has no concern for the lost and for the poor. It makes you proud but yet incredibly insecure. It creates burdens that crush, yet you won't carry them. It is self-justifying self-defeating, hypocritical, and guaranteed to repel. The tax collectors and the sinners, they didn't want a bar of the Pharisees. But when Jesus came and preached grace and embodied grace and showed God's welcome of all people by his undeserved favour, they flocked in. So it takes us to our last point. Why were they flocking in? They were previously had been turned off. They didn't want a bar of the religion the Pharisees were peddling. But they saw in Christ grace. And Jesus uses this word. He says, everyone is forcing their way into it. The word here, people struggle with it because it's a word, it could be translated, inflict violence. I had kind of a... you Remember when we used to have Boxing Day sales... Uh, I used to work in David Jones in Sydney, uh, in the city stores, uh, and you'd have a certain number of really cheaply priced goods, and you'd actually have people lining up at the doors, multiple deep, not socially distanced, uh, and when those doors would open, you would just see people going, and people would, people would end up getting trampled. That's the image. Jesus is giving a vision of God's grace, that has got people so desperate to come in. I've literally got to have what this man is offering. And it's not a a free and easy. It's not a anything goes kind of religion. Grace is at its heart. But grace that meets us where we're at, it never leaves us where we're at. We just celebrated the Lord's Supper, the death of, And resurrection of the Lord Jesus, where God's grace was vividly displayed. The condemnation that we deserved, he took. The glory, the blessing, the love that he deserves becomes ours through faith. Grace is at the heart of our religion, and that grace transforms us. It meets us where we're at, but it never leaves us there. And if we are those who have truly come to recognise God's grace, if we have truly put our trust in God because of his grace, that grace will leave its mark. In the joy that we have to serve the king, in the heart that we have to bless others, the longing we have for people to come to know the grace of God as we know the grace of God, the compassion that we have on other sinners as we recognise that we also are sinners. And as grace transforms us, it will transform our church Are we the kind of church where people come in and they feel that grace? They feel that welcome? Not just the polite welcome at the door, but I want to be here. Do people look at us and say, What this person has, I see, is radically different? And I want what they have. Brothers and sisters, I think Jesus is given us an example here in these few verses of a graceless religion. And as we see it in light of the whole teaching, he's calling us as his disciples to see the Father's love lavished upon us, to see God's grace embodied in Christ ultimately in his death and resurrection, and to respond to that grace with lives overflowing with thankfulness. Let's pray.